Hello there, listeners. It's Susie New from the Australian Society of Anaesthetists, and thank you for listening to our podcast. It's called Australian Anaesthesia, and it's where we talk about all things relevant to anaesthesia in Australia. This is episode 80, and I have been wanting to bring you this conversation for a while. I am super excited. You might remember a few episodes ago, I chatted with Dr. Moira Rush about her time in Fiji as the Australian Society of Anaesthetists Pacific Fellow. I think that was back in episode 75. Well, in this episode, we are leaving the tropics far, far behind. Instead, we are adjusting our theatre lights, get it, and shining them on Antarctica. Yes, Antarctica, that large body of land and ice that houses the South Pole, lots of cute penguins and not many people. In this episode, I'm so pleased to be chatting with Dr. David Tian, who is currently a second year anaesthesia trainee at Westmead Hospital in New South Wales. Congratulations, David, and also thank you, Westmead, for supporting him and enabling to do this. David took time out of his anaesthetic training so that he could embark on an adventure of a lifetime. Dr. Tian worked with the Antarctic Division, and in that role, he was based on Mawson Station over winter. Can you imagine 11 months in one of the most remote places on our planet with 14 of your soon-to-be best friends. Yeah, I think I would struggle with that, which is why I'm so grateful to David for giving up some time to chat with me about how he got there, what it was like, and how this incredible experience has impacted him. All right, let's get into it. I'm so excited about this conversation. You've just done an incredible job and had an incredible experience. So fortunate. I've been wanting to find out more about this for ages. Oh, you're too kind. (laughs) Far too kind. It's different. Yeah. Something to talk about. Exactly. And so what stage of your training are you at? Second year at the moment. So thankfully I passed primary, halfway through BD2, then took the two year off and then now restarting sort of BT2 again, basically. So I've been back at work for about a, a month and a half now, uh, which is very different to uh, to what I was doing last year. Okay. I'm just a bit confused about the timing. So you came back in, when was it about? End of 2022 Okay, was when I left Antarctica. Then I had a few months off, thankfully. I'm very grateful to Westmead Department to give me a bit of time off to do a bit of traveling and R&I and catch up on learn how to re-enter civilization. And uh, here I am. Yeah. Yes. And so you were basically in Antarctica for all of 2022. So the Antarctic contract is a bit different to the New South Wales Health Clinical Year, basically. The doctor role generally starts in about August each year. So I started in 2021, August, down in Hobart with the Australian Antarctic Division, and then spent a couple of months training, did a few months as a ship doctor, and then went down to Antarctica properly in February last year in 2022. So going right back even before that, when did you first get on the anaesthetic training program? 2020. So got onto the program 2020. The program did a year of anaesthetics. Did a year of anaesthetics. And then halfway through 2021. Is when you went down to Hobart to do your training. Correct. Yeah. How long had this been in your mind, this idea of becoming a doctor in Antarctica? I think I've always been lured by the outdoors. I've growing up always been reading about the books of the Antarctic explorations and the heroic age of the Antarctic explorers. But I've known about the program since medical school, but never really gave it much of a thought. But then one sort of night I saw the ad pop up on Facebook and decided to give it a go and apply and didn't really think much of it. But about a year and a half later, got a few emails saying, can you do a couple rounds of interviews and did one interview, did another interview, did a third interview, and then finally got a phone call from the chief medical officer of the Antarctic program to say, hey, do you want to go to Antarctica? 
And gee, that's really yeah changed my life for the past few years. What, a, what an amazing phone call that would have been. <laughs> so when did you first apply? Were you already an anaesthetic registrar? Yeah, so that was before anaesthesia training. I think that's probably when I was a cricket SRMO in Sydney when I first applied. And the application process does take quite a while. There are a lot of doctors applying for this role. So it does yep. take the entire program quite a while to sit through all the applicants and find the individuals who qualify and who have the skill set to go down. So it probably took a year for the application process to progress through. I can see why it's such a selection process because it is quite a thing that we ask of the doctors down there. So so three interviews, what sort of things do you think they're looking for? So the way the Antarctic Medical Program really works is that it's generally a single doctor model. So you're the only healthcare provider on the base. And because of how remote and extreme it is, you're the go-to person for everything medically related. And you're not just the GP, you're the anaesthetist, the surgeon, the nurse, the physiotherapist, OT, the radiographer, everything. And so what they generally look for is someone who's dabbled in a little bit of all those specialties and who have had a bit of training in physiotherapy or critical care management, a bit of allied health and nursing as well. And I've been quite fortunate in terms of my rotations back in the days as a junior doctor of spending quite a bit of time in various sort of rural terms in in Broken Hill, in Port Macquarie, and various rotations in critical care where you're forced to look after these unwell patients, sometimes by yourself and make decisions by yourself. And I think that's what really helped me proceed through the application process, yeah. Great. So made it through the three interviews. Did you have to go to Hobart for them or could you do them online? This was back during COVID time. So this was all online. Usually they fly you down to Hobart to meet some of the other people in the department, in the Antarctic Medical Practice Department and some other key stakeholders inside the Antarctic program itself. So you went through the interviews without actually meeting the people within the program first? No, that's right. Wow. So it was a really big plunge when you actually went to Hobart and started going through the training because you'd already accepted the position by then. That's right. And then once you get down to Hobart, you meet people who've been down to Antarctica 10, 15 times and they have a wealth of experience and all these stories from their previous expeditions. It really opens your eyes to a different world. Did you think at that point it's too late to turn around? I've said yes to the job. They've started training me now that I'm actually hearing what it's really like. I can't change my mind now. It's too late. (laughs) Yeah, there were moments when I look at myself and go, gee, what have I got myself in for? And yes, like you say, it's before I even got to Antarctica in the first place. But the training has been excellent. They really support us through deploying us down to Antarctica in terms of training and equipment and materials. So couldn't have asked for a better organisation to be part of. Oh, wow. Incredible. Before we go into the training, were you able to talk to other people who'd been? Did you have an idea of what it had been like or had you watched some good movies? What was your research going into the job? I was lucky enough to know someone who actually went down before. So I had to chat to him quite a few times about experiences. But the Antarctic program also puts out lots of videos on YouTube about life and experiences down there. There's quite a few doctors and also other non-medical expeditioners who've written blogs about their time in Antarctica. So it really gives people an idea of what to expect when they get down there. And that really opened my eyes and made me feel comfortable in stepping into this position, into this role. Did you look at that sort of material before you applied or you were discovering it as you'd applied and going through interviews and going through training? Yeah, just as going through the interviews, basically. I didn't think I had much of a chance applying, but I somehow got lucky and got through the first few rounds of interviews and then started looking properly into other people's experiences and realised that this is something I actually probably want to do for a whole year. So let's go through the training. So you fly down to Hobart. How long is the training down there and what did you do? Yeah, so generally about three, four months or so. So I usually spend about a month with the Royal Hobart Department of Surgery or Department of Anesthetics to do four weeks of upskilling. We spend another four weeks in the Antarctic program itself, learning the intricacies of Antarctic medicine, the equipment we use and what resources we have and some of the, the clinical protocols that we have as well. 
After that, there was two weeks of dental school. So usually we're mentored by a dentist from Melbourne who teaches how to do basic dental evaluations, cusp repairs, root canals, extractions. And there was a bit of hands-on experience with mannequins as well. But I wouldn't put root canal in the basic dental care category. I think it's getting quite <laughs> technical there. It was, yeah, it did. It certainly was. <laughs> but it was very good to at least know the concept of how it gets done and the equipment and familiarity yeah. if we had to do one in the end, which thankfully I didn't have to. Yeah. Likewise with the surgery, how far did you have to take your surgical skills? A fair bit. So we scrubbed in quite a lot. Royal Hobart was quite kind to us and letting us assist quite often. So a lot of routine appendixes and cholecystectomies, we assisted in sort of some of the more simple neurosurgical cases and burr holes we participated in. So they really got us, yeah, into the mix properly. So if you were down in Antarctica at the time and someone you thought had an appendix that needed to come out, would you feel like you could do the operation? That's probably pushing me a bit, but uh, clinically, I suppose I have to if I have to. The good thing about any surgical, any intervention procedure in Antarctica is that it's always very well supervised. If we do a procedure down Antarctica, there will be anaesthetists watching remotely. There'll be surgeons watching remotely, guiding us through the different process of what to do next, the key pitfalls to look out for, what to be aware of. So it's not like we've left our own with a textbook and expected to perform the procedure by ourselves. Yeah, I'd assume. And also now great internet access and video support and all of that. That's right. Back in the days, I think 40, 50 years ago, maybe more, but there was an Australian doctor who was down in Antarctica. Someone, I think, had a four, hit his head and needed a burr hole. So he was reading medical textbooks and then texting Hobart, I think, on, I want to say, well, sort of Morse code on the HF radio as well. Back in the days, they've gone through some tough times. Oh, my goodness. Much better technology. Yeah. And this is one thing that everyone must have asked you. Did you have to have your appendix taken out? Yes. It's actually part <laughs> it's of the contract. The, it's yep. the first thing people ask me whenever I talk about Antarctica. Oh, did you know? Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Straight from the horse's mouth. You're less one appendix at the moment. Correct. Yeah. The sacrifice <laughs> we have to make to be an Antarctic doctor. I think there's quite a few, a lot of people have heard, you know, there was a Russian doctor back in the day who so took out his own appendix. He did a lot of appendicitis and took out his own appendix while he was stationed in Antarctica. So that's why for all Australian doctors, if we haven't had our appendix taken out previously for whatever reason, we undergo prophylactic appendectomy with the expectation that we can take other people's appendix out, but we can't take our own out. Hence, we get it removed. That, so that story about the Russian doc- doctor is true, is it? I always thought that was a bit of an urban myth. I, I do believe so, yeah. He gave himself lots of local anaesthetic, took an hour and a half or even two hours. Whoa. I think his main complaint was, I think, muscle ache and spasm because he was sort of straining to, to look at his own wound in the mirror. Oh, gosh. Yes, yes. The positioning. Positioning is everything. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I keep absolutely. Saying. Okay, so you're in Hobart. You start in August. You're there for three or four months during the training. And then, and you're getting the medical skills, uh, a bit about the background on the program, the logistics. What other things are that you're also covering? Yeah, uh, physiotherapy. We do about a week of physiotherapy. We do spend some time with, with Tasmanian Fire Service as well, learning how to put out fires and enter mm-hmm. burning buildings. Other things we do is an eight-day wilderness expedition course as well, wilderness medicine course. What else? There's cadaver anatomy lessons as well, a psychological sort of uh, tutoring or learning how to be a good counsellor, anaesthetic, some regional anaesthesia stuff as well, yeah. Why did you need to do cadaver anatomy? So that was an opportunity for us to actually do an open appendectomy on an on actual specimen, yes. which is extremely good practice as well, hands-on practice. Yeah, I've heard that actually. The cadavers are really good for surgical tra- skills training. Mm, yeah. Wow, amazing. And then you were the ship's doctor first, you said, before you were then the base doctor. So when did that start? 
I think that was in probably around December. RSV Noina, which is Australia's new icebreaker, uh, arrived sort of during the year I was there. So I was fortunate enough to take the ship down to Antarctica on its first southern icebound mm, voyage. That's really so exciting. I spent about two, three months on the seas on Noina, doing a lot of scientific campaigns, scientific research, delivered a few cargoes and helicopters to, to some of the, the bases. And it's a fantastic ship, which cost about $500 million, which the, the Antarctic program now is able to utilize in upcoming campaigns campaigns and future expeditions. Wow, great. And was that a there and back trip? Yeah, that was a there and back. Yep. 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 And so you got to see Antarctica in the summertime, which I hear is just amazing and beautiful. Oh, it's 24 hours sunlight. The weather's absolutely beautiful. There's sitting in the low single digits, lots of penguins and wildlife around everywhere, lots of people around. It was just absolutely gem of a place. I think the term that comes to mind is always magnificent desolation. It's so pristine and wild and untouched by humanity. One of the last few places on earth that's like that. So every day I think about my experiences and I think how lucky I have been to be able to go down. Wow, amazing. So you go there and back and you're on the ship for, I'm going to have trouble pronouncing it, Nuina. Nuina. So you're on Nuina for a few months and then you're back in Hobart. Yep. Hobart for a bit longer. There's a bit of pre-departure quarantine that we go through because obviously this is still during the throes of COVID as well. So every time we deployed down to Antarctica, we had to go through two weeks of pre-departure quarantine to avoid bringing it down to Antarctica. And then in end of January, February, that's when I left Hobart for the last time and went down to Antarctica for good. Wow. So Jan, Feb, 2022. And you're on one of the last ships that's going down for the summer. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it was a different ship this time. I think an American icebreaker that the Antarctic program chartered. Took about two and a half, three weeks to sail to Mawson Station, which is the, the station I was based at. Dumped us off, delivered some cargo, delivered some fuel, and then swapped over the crew and uh, waved goodbye to, uh, to them. And they were the last people we saw for about 10 months. Wow, that's incredible. And so on that ship down, you have a professional role. You're not just a passenger at that stage. A bit of both. You're still acting as the ship doctor for the Antarctic expeditioners. There was another ship doctor on board as well, thankfully. So we share the duties quite significantly. Okay. All right. So you go down as the ship's doctor, half and half, and then you get there and you're at Mawson with how many other people? There were 15 of us for the winter. So myself and 14 other people. So a very small station. That's incredible. So 15 and all men. No. So we, oh, had, we were actually had a really good mix. We had four women and 11 men. Okay, great. So a balance, a slightly gender balanced group, and Mm. you're at Mawson for the next 10 months together. Yeah, pretty much. That's incredible. I mean, that just that on its own is, I think, an incredible thing. Just the idea of being in those quarters for that long with so few people is such a huge challenge. How did you approach that part of it? I think a big part of it was mental preparation. And firstly, I had a really good crew. So I was really fortunate that the other 14 people were the absolute legends who I happily invite to my wedding or have a beer with, have a catch up with any time of the year. So having the people there really made the station function well. We all got along really well with each other. We had lots of jokes and inside jokes and activities all planned up. But in terms of preparation for it, I think it's mentally thinking about the challenges we face and then tackling them together as a station. We knew it was going to be potentially monotonous. We knew the weather was going to be challenging, but we all found ways together as a group to to get over that. And again, it's a testament to the other people that I was with that we all got through it pretty well in the end. Did you all get to know each other before you went out? Sort of all just meet and bond on the boat? Yeah, the other 14 people had a chance to, but because I was already a ship doctor on a previous voyage, I didn't get the chance to meet them until pretty much a day of embarkation. But I had phone contact and sort of various Zoom meetings with them. But first time I saw them was on the ship. 
Oh, wow. That's an incredible team moment, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was. But like I said, it's a great crew and couldn't have got asked for a better sort of group of people to spend the time with. That's good to hear. So tell me, what was life down there like? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I've always thought about how to explain this to people. And I suppose it was like living a bit of a mix between workplace and also living in a college, a university college. We all mm-hmm. lived together in one building. Everyone had their own individual rooms, generally individual bathrooms. We had a chef on the station who provided excellent meals three, four times a day. Uh, and we live together, we work together, we help each other with our tasks, jobs and roles. Sometimes it got a bit boring, but then we always sprinkle in sort of various activities to make things interesting and life exciting again. But I suppose it was like any other workplace around Australia, with the exception that we live together at the end of the day, rather than go home to our separate families. Did you have a sense that there was still a usual sort of nine to five workday? We did. We all, in our head, before going in, we established that our days were going to start at 8 o'clock and we're going to finish at 4 o'clock and any time outside that is our free time. So setting boundaries, I think, in this environment was quite important for us. Mm. Yeah, definitely. But then obviously when you're the only doctor there and there's an emergency, you're pretty much on call for the whole time as well. That's right. So generally 24-7 on call, but we also had Hobart doctors to support us as well if we were either off station for whatever reason or if we weren't feeling up to it. Fair enough. Good support. I'll come back to the off station in a bit. Your first trip down there, it's during summertime. You've got all the postcard pictures in your phone by this stage, all the penguins and things like that. How much has the weather changed over wintertime as opposed to summertime down there? Yeah, fair bit. And before going down, I had this sort of expectation seeing all the sort of the cruise ship ads and the getaway sort of TV shots of, of beautiful, pristine land with no winds, so people walking around happily with penguins. But come wintertime, it is a very different season indeed. The sun doesn't really rise for very much of the day if it rises at all. The wind sort of on average gets up to about 30, 40 kilometres. The temperature goes down to about minus 20. And every time you go outside, it's either pitch black or it's windy or there's no visibility because of the blowing snow. So it's a very different environment during winter. But again, that's something different. That's a challenge that we all embraced and really enjoyed. And yeah. Just tell me more, just paint a picture for me of the sunlight down there. How sunny does it get at the peak of winter? So in the peak of winter, which is actually about this time in the middle of sort of June, there's probably an hour or two of dawn. I think there's probably a couple of weeks where you don't see the sun rise at all, but you do have about 11 o'clock to one o'clock in the morning during lunchtime, you just get a bit of a, the pre-dawn period and that's about it. Wow. So mm. a bit of a faint orange glow in the distance maybe, and then it'll just get dark again. And it's dark again and uh, yeah. How did everyone not get seasonal affective disorder and go crazy during that? Yeah, I think seasonal affective disorder was one of the biggest problems that people typically experience down in Antarctica, especially given the light challenges. We mm. all had our individual sort of our approaches to dealing with that. Some people had various light therapy. Some people scheduled the days around their sort of sleeping patterns. And yeah, we just had different ways of coping with that individually. Incredible. I think I would really struggle. <laughs> and in the summertime, I think you have the opposite problem as well of, of 24-hour sunlight. So again, the season extremes at the two end of the spectrum. Yep. And so what sort of work is the team doing down there over winter? Is it mainly scientific research? Or is it maintenance of the station? What sort of things are going on? Yeah, so during the winter period, we really go down into sort of a go-slow period overall. And it's mainly focused on station maintenance. It's a very trades-heavy team. We had a few sort of different trades, the Sparkies and the Plumbers and the Carpenters and the, uh, the diesel mechanics and their role is basically make sure the station is running uh, there's a bit of minor infrastructure upgrade as well but the, the main function over winter is just to make sure that the lights are still on and the water is still flowing and the electricity is pumping 
Was there ever any doubt in your mind that those things might stop? Because if they did, that would be potentially catastrophic. Yeah, and the Antarctic program is worried about that a lot, rightly, because if the electricity goes out, then all the water freezes and all our pipes burst, and that's the life or death situation. And we did have incidences when the powerhouse stopped working for whatever reason. But there's a lot of redundancies built into the uh, within the program, and so we turn on the emergency backup generator pretty quickly. There's usually two or three redundancies for each critical system, so there's a lot of fail-safes built in for that specific reason. And I imagine that a lot of the redundancy is also in the skill set that the people have. So were you also being trained in how to help get backup generators back on and things like that? We certainly did have a lot of cross-training, but probably more so between the, the trades team, more so than the doctor role. As a doctor, I was just more purely focused on the medical side of things, which is great because it meant that I could focus purely on my role rather than have to worry about cross-training into other people's specialties. Yeah, was it busy as the doctor? There were moments that were busy. The typical stuff we see down there is more GP-related presentations, a lot of basic, simple occupational injuries, as you can expect on a work site like this. Psychological counselling is quite important as well, especially mm. because of the sunlight and the remoteness. But thankfully, we all got through the season okay. Yeah, great. Well done. And if there was a medical emergency down there, is there an option to retrieve patients off Antarctica in wintertime? Very difficult, just because of, firstly, where we are, Mawson Station is extremely remote. We're south of, of India, Sri Lanka, so quite far, a couple of hours away from Sydney or from Australia even. But the sea ice also freezes, which means that ships can't get in very close to our base. And because of the high winds, it, it can be quite difficult getting a plane in as well, especially having to wait for a good, appropriate weather window as well. So it can take two, three weeks to evacuate someone if the decision is made to evacuate. Wow. So you've got to keep them there and look after them in the meantime. And that's one thing I didn't appreciate because during the summer, Mawson is a coastal station, but then because the sea ice freezes, it actually becomes quite far inland, so to speak. That's right. I think the sea ice goes up to even sort of 10, 15, 20 k's or even more, depending on the season, beyond the coastline where we are. So getting a ship close to us is, in winter is pretty much impossible, to be honest. We drive on the sea ice on big, heavy sort of seven-ton vehicles. That's how thick wow. the ice is. So it's very difficult for an icebreaker to break into that over winter. And one thing I was intrigued about is you mentioned off-station activities because I've got this picture that it's dark, it's howling winds, it's really cold. What sort of things are you doing outside the station or off-station? Yeah, so we have the opportunity generally on weekends to, to drive away from our station base. And that's mainly just sort of go to some of the huts we have about 20, 30 kilometres inland and visit some of the penguin colonies. So generally it's once a month, twice a month, we swap around and try to get out to stay overnight in one of these remote huts or go visit a emperor penguin colony. And these huts, have they got power and they're heated and all those sorts of things? Because I'd imagine it's not like you're going alpine camping here in Australia where you can just do it in a snow tent. That's right, yeah. These huts have been there for many decades and I think they've been put there deliberately to allow us to have the ability to have a recreational getaway from the station. They all have gas heaters. We bring an electric generator food, water supplies for two, three, four days or so and just, yeah, sleep in a nice heated warm room for a couple of days and get away from station. Beautiful. Amazing. Because I wanted to ask that before, actually. Do you have an interest? Are you a skier? Are you an alpine kind of person? Are you a bit of an outdoorsy person? 
I dabble a little bit in mountaineering, mountain climbing. So mm-hmm. I do enjoy the cold. And I do enjoy climbing up in the snow and in the ice. So this actually turned out to be a perfect opportunity for me to do that for the whole year. <laughs> I can see that. All right. I suppose just as we're wrapping up, what do you think some of your biggest challenges were during the year or your time with the Antarctic Division? Oh, that's a good question. I think one of the challenges down there was to keep ourselves occupied, I suppose, and not get lulled into a sense of complacency. It's weird thinking that you're down in Antarctic and it's such a beautiful remote place that you get sick and tired of it. But after a couple of months, you get sick and tired of the scenery, work gets a bit boring, gets monotonous. And then because of that, a lot of complacency sort of creeps in in terms of safety, our own sort of well-being, how we look after ourselves and look after others. So I suppose that was one of the bigger things I've realised was how if things get quite monotonous, you get a bit sick of it all and you get a bit stir-crazy and you get a bit yeah, complacent with things. Yeah. How did you manage that? Yeah, that was something that was felt by a lot of us down in station and I suppose a lot of people back home as well might have had similar things during the lockdown and quarantines. One thing we did was to always have something to look forward to. Food was a big factor as well. Our chef was amazing in terms of cooking a diverse range of food. Every Saturday night we generally had an event going on, whether it's a dining-in night or a movie night or a Mexican night. And then the last thing we found really useful for us was a structure. So Monday night was always a roast night. Tuesday night was always a TV night. Wednesday night was always something else was going on Thursday was dance or whatever. So that really helped keep us occupied, keep us engaged and looking forward to the next few days or the next few weeks sort of thing. Yeah. I've got a six-year-old and she's very big on routines as well. That Yeah, that's right. People like routine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're creatures of habit sometimes. Exactly. I do a bit of work in developing countries and often we talk about people who come back and having reverse culture shock. Did you have any of that when you came back to yep. a warm semi-tropical Sydney and a bursting anaesthetic department? Yeah, it certainly was. So we, after spending 10 months and we sailed back into Hobart and coming through the Hobart sort of a harbour, the smell of the eucalyptus really hits you and the sight, the colour green really hits you because we didn't really have any new smells for the year. We didn't really see the colour green for the year as well. So that was a big shock sailing through and wow. getting hit inundated with all those sensory overloads. Yeah. Do you feel like you had to bunker down for a bit and just reintroduce yourself to the world in small doses? Yeah, pretty much. I remember the first night I had dinner, I ordered my meal and then left without paying because we never had to pay for anything down in Antarctica. <laughs> and even talking to people, introducing ourselves, it was very difficult because we haven't talked to someone new for 10 months. Course. So I was trying to learn how to actually learn all these social cues all over again almost. Oh, wow. Fascinating. It's just so fascinating. Do you have a favourite moment from your time down there? I think the time I spent with the other people there. The people were really special, I think. The nights playing darts. I think once we, we got the spa outside and we were inside the spa looking up at the stars in Antarctica. We had a spa. We had a spa. <laughs> we were fortunate enough to bring out the spa for our midwinter celebration and then sat no outside way. and looked at the stars. Oh, magic. Yeah. It was just a magical moment, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, amazing. You can't pay a million dollars for that experience, can you? Lee, do you think you'd ever go back again? I'd love to. I'd love to. It's such a beautiful place and such a fantastic group of people and organisation to work with. I'd jump at the chance to go down again if I could. 
Wow, that's a big advertisement for it. That's wonderful. And then my final question, is there anything else that you'd like to say? I would just say to especially the junior trainees or people who have an interest in Antarctica, have a look on the website, jobs.antarctica.gov.au. Highly recommend them at least to, to have a look at the website, look at the application process, just give it a go. Life's too short and training can always be deferred and, and this is a one truly a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Do you think they're only looking for junior doctors because they're looking for people with those broad skills yet? So it's someone like myself who's already been a long-established anaesthetist. Are we too far down the track to be any use? No, I don't think so. I think junior doctors, we do have... I suppose, a bit more generalist skill set, given our rotations as junior doctors. Definitely have, yes. But there's been senior sort of anaesthetists have gone down, there's been gynecologists gone down, surgeons gone down. It's not just open to rural generalists or ED physicians. If you're interested, I say have a look at the website and give it a go. Is there anything else? Yeah, no, just really grateful to Westmead um, Hospital and the Department of Anesthesia, Anesthesia here to uh, give me the time off to pursue this opportunity. Yeah, great department. Sounds really supportive. Yeah, very lucky. Wow, David, it's been great talking with you this morning. You are such a great ambassador for the program and I really can't wait to see how your career unfolds. I think it's just going to be fantastic and full of adventure. So thank you so much. Thanks, Susie. Thanks for the opportunity. Really happy to be on. Well, I hope you found that conversation as interesting and inspiring as I did. I love the idea of working somewhere like Antarctica and I'm so impressed with people like David who actually make it happen. Thank you for your dedication and contribution. If you'd like to read more about David's experience as well as see some really cool photos, then feel free to look at the September 2023 edition of Australian Anaesthetist. The theme for that edition is transition. Transitioning into becoming an anaesthetist, transitioning out of it, some of the other roles we might do, some of the career changes that people have faced or are still facing. The magazine is available on request from the ASA website, asa.org.au. And members of the Australian Society of Anaesthetists, you should receive a hard copy of that in your mailbox or a digital copy in your inbox. Of course, I'll put a link to that in the show notes, as well as a link to the Antarctic Division if you are considering applying for a job there. If you do, please let me know. I'd love to do a follow-up podcast with you. All right. In the meantime, I hope you are enjoying winter or summer, wherever you happen to be. And as always, I hope you are staying safe and well out there. Thank you for listening to the Australian Anesthesia Podcast, which can be found on all the major podcast hosting platforms, as well as YouTube. This podcast is produced by the Australian Society of Anaesthetists and hosted by Dr. Susie Newt with music created by Dr. Mark Seuss. The ASA was formed in 1934 and our vision is for every anaesthetist in Australia to be at their best, providing the highest quality anaesthesia and perioperative care through excellent technical and non-technical skills. We also hope that this means that you are functioning at your best when you're away from work. In this podcast, we have conversations that seek to inform, challenge and inspire you to keep you performing at your best. Members of the ASA can access full versions of all episodes by logging into the ASA website at asa.org.au. If you are listening on your favourite podcast app, then make sure you look at the episode notes for the direct link to the podcast on the ASA website. Also, feel free to follow or subscribe so that you can receive the latest episodes as we do publish regularly. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to email us on podcast at asa.org.au. Thank you for your time and we hope you enjoyed listening.